Good morning, Petaluma. You are listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted. I'm Rabbi Ted Feldman, the Rabbi of Israel Jewish Center here in Petaluma, and the chair of the Petaluma Community Relations Council. Welcome to this week's program in our studio during this uh, time when I have some hand sanitizer in front of me and wipes and all kinds of things that our world is uh, focusing on these days. Uh, appropriately, our first guest today is Donna Waldman, who is the Executive Director of the Jewish Community Free Clinic. And welcome to our studio today. Yeah, good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we uh, already did our hands, and uh, here we are on this, uh, this fine Thursday morning trying to figure out our world, right? Really? Yeah, so I'm glad you're here with us today. It's actually fortuitous because uh, I know you're doing healthcare work in the agency you represent. Let's first uh, focus on you for a minute and a little bit about your background and how you got into this and what other things you do in life and all of that. Can well, thank you very much. Um, yeah, my name's Donna Waldman. I'm Executive Director of the Jewish Community Free Clinic. And I had the great honor of being one of the original founders of the Jewish Community Free Clinic. We're going on 19 years now. And the clinic was um, the brainchild of Dr. Robin Lowitz, who is a local physician, actually doing acupuncture right now in um, Kenwood. And Dr. Lowitz had the idea that there were people in our community that did not have access, ready access, affordable access to health care. So she put together a group of friends, of which I was one, and um, I think that she asked me because at the time I was a small business owner in Sebastopol and had about 100 employees and was running a small factory. So she called on a bunch of people that she knew that could help her put the clinic together and we started out in a one-room school clubhouse and packing and unpacking our goods. And now it's 19 years later. So I retired from the small business that I was um, running in about eight years ago now. Actually, probably more like 14 years ago now, um, although I've been working part-time for them. So... Fourteen years ago, the Jewish Community Free Clinic needed an executive director, and I said that I could fill in for six months, and it's now 14 years later. So, yeah, well, calendar stuff gets confusing. Right, really confused. Yes, that's true. So, yeah. Wow. So, um, yes, and the Jewish Community Free Clinic is a little miracle in our community. We're completely free. Um, anybody that needs health care can come. Um, no questions asked, no income verification, no ID. We see everybody regardless of religion, and we do primary care, social services, mental health, acupuncture, women's health. Wow. So let's see, for a long time you were in Katadi, right? For a long Correct. Time. Yeah. We went from basically place to place in Katadi. Mm -hmm. I think we were in four different locations. And then one day we got a call from a generous, anonymous donor who said, we've got a beautiful medical building. Would you like it? And I said, probably. Thank you. <laughs> it's a good thing you say probably because you never know. What it was no, actually, right. I was warned that um, 
oftentimes if you have sort of a toxic building and you can't sell it, it's a good thing to donate it. And that was not the situation. We uh, got a beautiful building. And it's right down the street from Memorial Santa Rosa Hospital. Memorial Hospital uh-huh. in Santa one Rosa. One block away. Yeah. I remember one time on December 31st at 10 o'clock in the morning, I get a call from this man. He's a dentist sell, wanting to sell his practice. Nobody wants it. Could he just donate all of the things to Jewish family? When I was at Jewish Family and Children's Services, I said, what am I going to do? Right? It's one of those, i got to get rid of this stuff. Correct. And, uh, Correct. Yeah, you got to be careful. So you got to be really careful. But I know, it, I know, particularly in your case, that this building was a wonderful gift. Yeah, and a very important one. And right. the, the clinic has been thriving uh, in that location and serving the clients. Correct. So uh, when you say primary care, and uh, uh, what does what does that mean? What do you? Uh, basically, anything from um, respiratory to, you know, I stubbed my toe or I have heart palpitations and what do I do or I'm afraid I have diabetes basically any type of primary care if you need a specialist that's not the place to come although it is oftentimes the first place to come Um, however right now I know this is on everybody's mind who's listening to this Um, we are not testing for COVID-19 We're not really set up to do that. So we always let people into the clinic during our clinic hours one by one. And we're asking people with any kind of respiratory problems right now not to come to the Jewish Community Free Clinic because we really can't let people in. And we're requesting that people call their community clinics, their federally qualified community clinics, Petaluma Health Health Center, in Petaluma, um, if you're in Sebastopol, West County Health Center, or if you're in Santa Rosa, Santa Rosa Health Centers, and they will get you to the right place. If you are with a high fever, you need to go to an ER. Um, But I would always call first. If you have any fear around COVID-19, it's very important to call first. Because a lot of places like us are really not set up to be able to take the contagion. Right, and to isolate. And we need to isolate. Right, right. So it's, it's complicated because while this is definitely a worldwide problem and danger, so are a million other health problems that people have, such as diabetes or, health or heart disease. So we need to make sure that there is still health care for everything else while we focus on this. So it's important to remember that it's not the only illness that people are facing. And that's why we're really telling anybody, call your health care provider if you have a private doctor. Whoever it is that you have, you want to call first. And so far, actually, in Sonoma County, we are lucky that we don't have any current awareness of community contagion. Correct. But the fact that there are many events that are getting canceled and the purposes of that is to ultimately not provide an overburden to the healthcare system because if we have an exponential increase, then uh, both healthcare providers get sick and the capacity of our hospitals and clinics is limited to X 
and uh, if everything happens at one time, so all of this hullabaloo about no fans at, at, at sports events and public gatherings, the purpose, one of the main purposes of that, aside from keeping individuals healthy, is to not overtax the healthcare system. So Correct. They're really hoping that they can slow right. the epidemic, and if they slow it, then our healthcare providers will have the capacity to take care right. of everybody. Right. So it needs to slow down. Right. Um, we tell people stay calm, wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands, keep your hands away from your face. Um, make sure that you use hand sanitizers if you're in any kind of um, public place. Um, if possible, have a hand sanitizer in your car to wipe down your steering wheel. Um, and don't burden the, the whole economic structure by going to Costco and buying up all the toilet paper or we are really concerned that people not think that they need masks when that's not what's necessary right now because you want to make sure that there's enough masks for healthcare providers. Yes, so that's our call. I just read this article this morning on, about masks that in the Asian culture, uh, covering the face is, it, since they often don't do eye contact, covering the face is okay. In American culture, where we're expected to look at each other and look in each other's eyes and see the facial features, we have aversions to, to masks anyway. Correct. And so it's, it was a fascinating. So seeing people on the street, often with from Asian cultures, they're, they're covering. And we're uh, many Americans, and they are Americans too, but many Americans are looking at them saying, what's the matter? Are they crazy? Is something the matter? But for us, it has to do with the supply and the demand also. Correct. And all of that. Um, so we could spend the whole program uh, analyzing uh, what we don't know and don't know about coronavirus, at least from the news media. But I'd like to focus back on, on the clinic itself and uh, its many years of service. And, uh, you know, who are the clients? And... Uh, who are the patients that are coming there? What how, has that changed over the years? And you know, it actually really has. Um, over the now 19 years that we've been in operation and providing service, it has changed as the economics change. So at the beginning, we saw mostly rural agricultural workers, and then in 2008 and 2009, which many of us sadly remember as bad economic times. There were suddenly millions of people across the country that were mortgage brokers and um, housing contractors and people who were involved in parts of the economy that were really suffering that suddenly found themselves without work. And unemployed people come to the Jewish Community Free Clinic sort of as their first stop after they've lost their health insurance. So it's a no-brainer. You've lost your health insurance. Where are you going to go? You find out that there is a place that's completely free, completely free. You don't have to pay anything. Um, and they come to us. So 2008, 2009, we saw a whole lot more middle-class people than we had seen at the beginning where we were seeing mostly agricultural workers who tend to be low-income people. And then, for instance, right after the fire, after the Tubbs fire, we put on Facebook and on our 
message machine that anybody could come to the Jewish Community Free Clinic to get their medications prescribed, to deal with any kind of small ailments that they might have, because Vista, for example, had become unfunctional. So the good news about the Jewish Community Free Clinic is, is that we're completely independent. We don't have any government money. We don't have any state money or even any local money that is tied to rules and regulations. We are a licensed public health clinic, so we're high quality when it comes to any kind of medical standards. But our financing comes mostly from the community, and we answer to ourselves. We answer to our board. We can do whatever it is that's needed for the community at the time, and that is actually one of the beauties. So we see uh, mostly uninsured people. I'd say about 90% of the people who come to us are uninsured, and they are from all walks of life. Um, One large segment of the population that we see are undocumented people because they were not beneficiaries of the Affordable Care Act. And an example right now is you want to make sure that everybody stays healthy because having certain people unhealthy actually puts everybody at risk. So giving health care to uninsured people is a civic duty and very important. Um, Disease doesn't can't really tell. Disease can't ask you if you have your papers in order or not. Um, We also see a lot of home health care workers. In our county, a lot of home health care workers come from the Fiji Islands, and um, those workers are actually legal in the United States. They're documented, but they have no health care. So we see a lot of people from the Fiji community who come and um, work in people's homes. Mm -hmm. And in order to do so, they need TB testing, they need work physicals, and that's part of what we do. We do a lot of workforce um, readiness work. So if you're going to school and you need a physical to play in sports or you're trying to get a new job and they want you to get a TB test, a lot of people come to us for that. We also have mental health services, which is an eight-week short-term brief therapy program that anybody is eligible for. You just call up, come to one of our clinics, and we'll get your referral. And then every other Friday, we have acupuncture, which oftentimes is not a part of people's health care insurance. And we have a terrific um, acupuncture program. So it really is um, a wonderful resource for whoever needs it, regardless of religion. However, if you have another health care provider, you want to go to your provider. Of course. So, so who are your providers? How do they get there? Our providers are 100% volunteers. Wow. We only have um, three staff FTE and about 100 volunteers. Full-time equivalent, just uh, yes. translating Yeah, FTE. full-time equivalents. Yeah. And that's about five or six people who make up our staff. And then we have close to 100 volunteers, and that includes medical providers, doctors, family nurse practitioners, physician assistants. We have RNs. We have front desk people, translators, social workers. We are always in great need of providers and especially RNs 
So I never waste an opportunity to tell people that if this all sounds really good to you and you didn't know that the Jewish Community Free Clinic existed and you're so happy to know that anybody in our community can go and get free health care regardless of religion and you want to figure out what you can do to help, you can certainly donate money. But as important, you can call up your neighbor who is a recently retired registered nurse and say, do I have a deal for you? Okay. Okay, and call us up at the Jewish Community Free Clinic. Best way to reach us is via email. JewishFreeClinic.org is our um, website, and all of our contact information is available there. We basically live off of our volunteers. Our volunteers are what makes the organization, and we're in constant need particularly of RNs and also of medical providers. But you, uh, there are expenses involved in providing that medical care. It's not just paying the rent and electricity. Uh, you, I assume you're not doing your own lab work. You've not, you Correct. Know, so and, uh, uh, medicines uh, that you have and prescriptions that you're giving out. Uh, what's happened with that? So just to give people a, you know, a lot of transparency, we live on a budget of about 350 $380,000 a year. Okay. And that budget includes completely free labs we send out to Quest, uh-huh. um, completely free medications when indicated. We stock about 100 of the most commonly used medications and um, free vaccines. Mm. So program supplies are a big part of our budget. And then, of course, there's just the normal things like insurance and maintenance of the building. and But... That's a tiny little budget for roughly 3,000, 3,500 visits a year. We're probably a third the actual cost of a normal visit to the doctor in terms of what it costs us. But that's because we have more than a million dollars in free labor that comes by the way of the doctors and the nurses. So it is a struggle every year to come up with $350,000. It actually isn't a lot of money when you compare it to what we're providing, thousands and thousands of free visits every year to basically low-income people, but it is a struggle. So if you happen to be really good at fundraising or development work, we could use you. Um, We're also having an event that's coming up April 5th, although we're not exactly sure if we'll need to postpone or not. But we have fundraisers twice a year, and we always need help with people to do our fundraiser. We also have a few rooms that we can dedicate to a loved one that you may have who's no longer with us. And so we have a few rooms that we would like um, people to support by making a donation of $10,000. We really do need supporters, and we have about 200 to 300 local individuals who provide us with annual support, but that's part of the key to all of this, is we need support in the community so that we can continue to be viable and sustainable. So there's a lot of opportunity if you want to be on the giving end of the Jewish Community Free Clinic, if you want to be on the end of a client, the only thing that we require is is that you be uninsured without another place to go. And we are drop-in. You can find our hours on our website and just come to one of our clinics and line up. Um, Probably one of the only 
disadvantages is, is that it can take a little bit of time for the visit because we are first come, first serve. But aside from that, it's completely free, and it's really a wonderful opportunity to see a healthcare provider if you need one. Yeah, and I would, uh, you know, I particularly in this time with this pandemic and all that, you know, many uh, in the political world of medicine, uh, there are uh, numbers of people who are upset that the undocumented are getting health care, et cetera, et cetera, and that they shouldn't be here. And actually, uh, my second guest today is an immigration attorney, so we'll be talking a little bit about the immigration issues. But the fact is that giving health care to everybody who's around us is preventing others from getting disease, the flu, the, in this particular case now, the coronavirus. Everybody needs attention who's here. We shouldn't be worrying because, as you said before, the virus doesn't check documentation. Yes, I think, Rabbi, that that's probably one of the most important takeaways from our discussion this morning is that we have to, particularly I have to, as a person raising the money to keep this organization alive, I'm always having to argue right. why it's necessary for everybody to have health care. And in a pandemic like we're in right now, it's really obvious. Right. So it's yeah. not – you may think that not everybody should have food. That's a little bit different because food isn't contagious. Having food shortage is not necessarily contagious. But healthcare is contagious. So if you don't protect your entire community, you're not protecting your own family. Right, right. So it is super important for people to understand that it's a public health issue. It's not only an issue of, you know, should they or shouldn't they. Should you. If you want to stay healthy, your whole community needs to be healthy. Disease sees, is colorblind. Right, right. When we... We see that, obviously, with what's going on. Wow, we certainly we do. That. So when somebody comes to you uh, as a patient uh, and they clearly need uh, specialized care beyond the scope of the Jewish Community Free Clinic and its primary care role, um, how do they get that care? Okay, so the Jewish Community Free Clinic is not set up to be ongoing right. care. Right. So anybody who comes to us who has chronic illness such as diabetes or hypertension, we refer them to one of our sister clinics in the community, which are federally qualified health clinics, so the, the ones that we named earlier. Right. And that's where they will get their specialized care. Okay. And as partners with our community clinics, we have a great relationship. So if somebody comes to us and they're really ill, we can get in the back door, and we can get them seen sometimes the next day. I mean, we've even been in a situation where we've actually had people seen that very afternoon. Mm -hmm. Normally, you have to wait until you get enrolled. It will take a few weeks, sometimes during the summer, or if people are having, if clinics are having capacity issues, it can even be a few months. We'll see you in the interim. But anybody who's chronically ill, you need to be a standing member of a community clinic. If you have no chronic illness, we still want you to go to a community clinic because you're going to get preventative care and you're going to get a lot of things that perhaps we can't offer as well. But that's not as urgent and critical as anybody who's chronically ill needs to get into a community clinic where preventative care and specialized care is readily available. And have there been 
any issues among the patients who come to you because of the immigration stuff that's been happening that either has prevented them to co- from coming to you or come to you but afraid to go to a health center? Correct. That kind of so thing? it's the latter. Um, the Jewish Community Free Clinic really requires no identification, mm-hmm. no income verification, no questions asked. Okay. So many people come to us instead of going to a community clinic because they have the perception that we are safer. But I can tell you, since the community clinics are my sisters and brother clinics, uh-huh. I can say with all good heart, they will protect you. Your information at a community clinic is sacred, just the way it is for us, and you are not at risk going to a community clinic because of your immigration status. However, there is a perception sometimes that people don't want to give their ID, and we don't require ID. So part of our job is not only seeing people when they first need health care, but convincing them that the community clinics are safe. Well, I think that that's a really important one. We've had the staff of the Petaluma Health Center. Exactly. This program and this radio station is Petaluma-centric. Um, we've uh, had the staff of the Petaluma Health Center on here, and of course, uh, indicating the same thing, that their primary concern is the health of the people who reside in our community without questions about their status and uh, their immigration status, documentation, who they, you know, that kind of thing. So it's really an important It's very important, that, uh, and we're all partners in this together, and there's almost nothing better than uh, Petaluma Community Clinics. Yeah, and we, we have about a minute left in our discussion, believe it or not, it went quickly. So what's Jewish about Jewish Community Free Clinic, aside from the fact that many, as I well know, many of the supporters, uh, if not most of them, are from the Jewish community? Well, um, we were inspired by Jewish philosophy Uh of charity and repairing the world. Uh And we are based on the premise that we don't live alone in this world, but it's our obligation to give back. And that's about what makes us Jewish. Um, we are not majority Jewish volunteers. We don't think we even have all that many Jewish clients, but we're inspired by our beautiful tradition, our beautiful Jewish tradition, which basically tells us that we're not alone in the world, and we want to make sure that nobody else is either. Well, Donna Waldman, I want to thank you very much for being with us today, and I think that uh, that explanation of our Jewish commitment to this is right head on and look forward to working with you in the future. Yeah, thank you very much. And welcome. We'll invite you back to the second segment in three minutes.
Welcome back to the second segment of Talking with Rabbi Ted on KPCA LP, Petaluma, California, 103.3 FM. This is our second segment for today's program, and I want to welcome to our studio Angela Emmerich, who is a uh, local uh, immigration attorney. And uh, in this uh, era, particularly the past uh, three or four years, uh, we have had a major upturns, uh, overturns in our country around immigration issues and important for us to focus. So welcome to our studio today, uh, Angela. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so uh, we let, we start out with asking you a little bit about your background, how you, uh, where you come from, how you got to where you are, and why you chose this particular area of focus for your legal practice, I guess. Sure. So I'm actually, I was born and raised uh, half my life in Australia. Oh. Uh, back and forth, I came to the United States first when I was six years old, and my dad married an American, and so I got a green card through marriage, which is the easiest and most popular way. My dad got a green card, his two minor children got a green card, and there we were, back and forth from the United States. Um, ironically, all of my family lives in Australia again now, and I have my one brother, who was also born in Australia, we're both here, and everyone else is back, back in Australia. Here. Yeah. Um, so, I'm an immigrant myself and had a green card and only naturalized and became dual citizenship and a uni United States citizen uh, within the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. So, I've gone through the process that a lot of my clients get to go through and I can understand firsthand the interview they're going to go through, the place, you know, the lining up and, and the internal tension that all of that causes. So, um, I did that. I worked in restaurants for years. The law degree is my fifth degree. And so I worked in restaurants, getting through all those college degrees, and I still have all those beautiful loans outstanding. Um, but I worked with a lot of immigrants who were not being represented and not being helped, and I would hear their stories, and it just broke my heart. And then I decided to go to law school specifically to do immigration law. Mm. And that's, that's what I did. How long have you been doing it? Um, I would say probably about five, six years now, yeah. part three, partly through volunteer work while I was in law school. Then I got accepted into a big firm um, and did some clerking there, which was nothing to do with immigration, which just solidified that I wanted to do immigration um, in working in other types of law. And so I did that for a little while, a few years, while continuing to volunteer in immigration and then um, opened my own firm. Uh, well, that's great. And, uh, of course, I've uh, connected with you in the through the Petaluma Community Relations Council in the past and know of you from the various organizations that are working with uh, populations of uh, refugees, immigrants in our world. So it's a complicated uh, world today. I was uh, just talking to Donna Waldman in the previous section uh, segment about health care and uh, the undocumented having, you know, they are not isolated from the rest of the community and their health is just as important as everybody else's because we're all in this while they're here, good, bad, indifferent, legal, illegal, documented, undocumented, we're all in this community and they need care too. That's right. And I think a lot of them are very uh, are terrified to reach out for help right now, especially with the new public charge law that went into effect just in the last few weeks. Um, people are afraid to ask for medical help, thinking that if in the future there's a possibility they could change their status somehow or, you know, become legalized somehow, that having asked for medical help is going to greatly affect them. And they're not completely wrong in that fear, unfortunately. Okay, could you explain the public charge? Uh... So our president, Trump, uh, 
placed into law recently a public charge rule where he does not want people who have used public services or who are going to be a drain on the public system to be allowed to naturalize specifically. So if you've been a green card holder and you've been used, you know, accepting public benefits, you've been on some kind of disability, Medi-Cal, things like that, it could really have an effect, a negative effect as far as naturalizing. He's saying basically these are not the type of people. We don't want to support you. That's not the purpose of the United States. Right. So this so. applies not just to undocumented, but also to those people who have come here legally, gone through the green card process, etc. Uh, they could be stopped on their way to full citizenship as a result of this. Yes. Unfortunately, yes. It's, yeah, it's opening people who are doing things the right way to even more scrutiny. Right. Yeah. Right. And um, so you know, I, I, I think we ended our phone conversation with that ultimate question that I wanted to ask, but I'm probably going to start it now and see where the conversation goes, which is um, how do you deal with the issue of the undocumented who are here, are literally here illegally? I mean, your, your purpose in going to law school and the purpose is to deal with the law and to... Uh, advise people about legal issues and how to be legal in our country, mm-hmm. and yet part of the population that you're serving in in your role is trying to also provide aid and protection to those who are here and undocumented. So how do we how do we reconcile the fact that they are indeed illegal? Uh, I think that just because they entered illegally or undocumented or um, one of the legal terms is entered right. without inspection. So essentially they crossed over and didn't go through a border patrol and weren't inspected. Right. Um, doesn't mean that they don't have the same constitutional rights as we do. They have, you know, as far as search and seizure rights, as far as, you know, ICE or the police being able to come into their home without warrants, they have the same rights that we do. And so I think a lot of community organizations like you're discussing um, do a lot of know your rights and different different types of things like that. And those people have the same rights as us in many ways. Of course, you know, Medi-Cal and public charge and the things we just discussed are other problems that are on their plate that they're looking at. They're not able to work legally, so oftentimes they get taken advantage of by employers who don't pay them and say, there's nothing you can do about it. You can't, you're not here anyway. Um, So I think that those people have a a host of other issues that they face. Um, Being here undocumented is just part of the life that you know, they're trying to deal with. And the, um, you know, of course, the in, uh, enforcement through ICE over the past X amount of time has increased significantly. And uh, are clients coming to you through that system? Um, what's happening with, uh, with ICE enforcement in Sonoma County in particular? Sure. I think ICE enforcement is more in the media than it has been in the past. Uh, More people were deported under President Obama's reign than have been, except we're hearing more of it now, and people, there's more, um, just a general terror now. And I think what happened was this presidency opened up who was able to be deported. So under the Obama administration, there were levels of people who were, levels of importance of who could be deported um, under ICE and under immigration laws. And so it was felonies, you know, and, and gang members and those types of things. And this president opened it up really to any type of criminal activity. So a first-time DUI, which, of course, we don't want people driving around and endangers the entire public. 
but a first-time DUI could now have you deported. Um, medical marijuana, which is now legal in California, is still illegal federally, and you could be deported for that. So he really opened it up to everybody with any type of criminal history rather than the levels, you know, felon, felons and um, gang members and the, the people that Obama was more focused on. I remember when uh, this, we were debating in our state about whether the uh, undocumented should be able to acquire driver's licenses. Mm-hmm. And of course, there were many obstacles to get them to go and feel safe enough to go to DMV to be able to get the license. I got that part. But I, mean, I used to say it's pretty simple in my mind. It's a really simple thing. I'd rather have a licensed, protected driver, driver who's been tested on the road than people we don't know if they know how to drive or not know how to drive, just driving around. So uh, it, it was a, it was simple in my mind. It was a simple thing, but obviously all those simple things get pretty complex. Yes, and I don't think everyone, you know, that seems simple to you, but that's open-minded, really. There are a lot of people in other states, clearly, with real ID now, who are not happy about giving people who are undocumented licenses. And that's another thing. Um, driving without a license can be charged as a misdemeanor, and you could be deported for that. Right, so right. Um, just another silly thing. Let's give them a license and teach people to drive and keep us all safe. So what, what's happening in the uh, legal system of, of gaining access and, and citizenship in this country? How, what's, what's that looking like these days? Under this presidency, it's begun to change. Uh, I, know, I don't know. Have, for instance... Um, uh, sibling reunification, uh, at least the Republican platform, they wanted to get rid of sibling reunification in the immigration laws and leave it to parents and spouses and children. Is that Was that ultimately implemented? or? Uh, I don't know that it's been implemented yet. I know that this administration was trying to what they called chain immigration, where you can sponsor your whole family and um, that sounds like it's an easy thing. Somebody, one person comes in legally or, or marries someone and gets status, and then they just start sponsoring their entire family. And it sounds like a really nice way for things to be done. And unfortunately, it's not quite that easy. Right. Um, there's a backlog right now. If you're trying to sponsor your adult brother or sister who's married, um, I just looked yesterday for a client, and they're currently working on approved applications from 1997. So there's quite a backlog. It's not as easy as it sounds. Yes, yes. Uh, actually, my uh, brother-in-law is in Thailand, and we we looked into that. And for him to come here, uh, it was a 17-year wait at that yep. point when we looked at it. Which mm-hmm. is, and even from Mexico, which we consider, you know, we're concerned about all the the undocumented from Mexico, but family reunification for American citizens of Mexican ancestry. Was like the same amount of time, and it's, I don't know what it's like these days. Is it still that long? It is. Yeah, that's that was when I yeah, yesterday I looked it up, and it was ninety seven. And basically, there's I believe there's sixty five thousand visas available to Mexico per year, so of that type of visa. And you uh-huh. can imagine the number of people. And so the first sixty five get it, and then the rest go to the back of the list. And that's why the backlog is about twenty thirty years long. It's amazing. Yeah, it's a <laughs> lifetime. It's, 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 <laughs> I mean, I laugh at it because it's, it's there's an absurdity. Uh, there's an absurdity to that. Um, and that's the people trying to come in legally, right? And, and so right. I think that that doesn't excuse it, but it does explain why a lot of people choose to come a different a route, right? I mean, we, we also do have people who get visas to come here and then overstay their visas. Mm-hmm. And that's a whole other category of 
people who are here undocumented, so to speak. Yes. Right. And those are not from Mexico necessarily. Those are from European countries and other places in the world. Um, any comment on those cases? Well, that's people think that that's not such a big deal. You know, I got a visitor visa or a tourist visa and I came in and then I stayed an extra week or an extra year and I worked a little bit and it was, you know, I'll just go back and I'll get another visa. And those laws are incredibly strict. Um, my, I'm Australian, like I said. My mother came over a number of years ago, overstayed her visa and has a 10-year ban. So my mother can't be here. She missed graduation and wedding and my two kids' births. And that's a real issue. So right. I think that people don't take seriously those laws, and they think they're from a friendly country, a Europe, Australia, a European country. Um, you know, they're not from Mexico and the, these other countries that have bigger backlogs. Right. But it's still serious, and it's still the law, and it doesn't matter what color your skin is or what language you're speaking. The law is the law, and if you overstay it, there's going to be consequences. Right, right. That is... Um so what would you like the community to know about the work you're doing and the concerns that you have with our current, uh, you, know, you know, limiting 30,000 refugees or 30,000 uh, people? Is that refugees only or is that that limit of 30,000? I don't limit? know exactly what that's referring to. Yeah, um, I, said, I don't either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know there was a, a lot 30, of information. There was a 30,000 limit, mm -hmm. but I, I don't know if that was a refugee. I think that was a refugee limit. I think that it was the lowest refugee limit in the past 20, 30, 40 years. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I, right now, I would say the majority of my practice is deportation defense, removal defense. Mm -hmm. And it's people who are coming to the border and asking for asylum. Okay. And uh, what that means, though, is that when somebody comes to the border and asks the United States for asylum, they don't get asylum. They get an ankle monitoring bracelet. First, they get detained mm -hmm. indefinitely. Um, or sometimes they wave them right through. Then they get an ankle monitoring bracelet, just like if they were convicted of a DUI. So now they've got a tracking bracelet on their ankle. Um, they're released in the United States to somebody who is willing to take care of them, a family member. And then they're put into removal proceedings. So they get to fight their deportation in front of a judge and ask for asylum. So that's how, it's, that's how asylum is playing out right now. And that's what the majority of my cases are. And what that sounds like is um, they're guilty until proven innocent. It does sound like that, yes. Yes, that's how it sounds. They have to prove... And I understand that we cannot grant asylum to everybody who's seeking it. Right. Um, and one of the biggest things is a lot of people, especially in you know Mexico and other countries, Latino countries, there's a lot of cartel and uh, corroboration between cartels and government and police. And so they are, they are credibly afraid, but it's very specific what qualifies for asylum. And a general fear doesn't qualify. And so a lot of those people will be turned back to their home country, mm -hmm. unfortunately. Yeah, and... What's the definition of a refugee? A refugee is someone who cannot return to their country um, for different reasons. Asylum seekers, um, they have to prove that somebody is threatening them. This goes for a convention against torture, withholding of removal, and asylum. They have mm -hmm. to prove that uh, they've been threatened, death threats, or threats of violence against them or, or their immediate family member that they're asking for asylum with. They have to prove somehow that they went to the police and that their own government or police is unwilling or unable to protect them. And so the United States should step up and do that for them. Those are hard, hard things to hit. And a, re a refugee escaping what's so... I'm just trying to understand. Yeah, so a refugee is generally escaping some kind of unrest in their country. It may be political. It may be something greater. So 
asylum seekers, it's more specific to them. A refugee okay. might be more of a countrywide issue. Okay, so asylum asylum seekers, it's a more of a personal. So the gangs in the neighborhood, right, and could have marked them for as a target, and mm-hmm. that would be. Whereas, uh, and I, uh, you know, in my experience, I was we were doing refugee resettlement. Uh, for Jews from the former Soviet Union right. uh, coming to the United States. So I dealt with the, the national agencies and all of that uh, to resettle them. So I understand, uh, at least as that process was uh, before I was in this business, mm-hmm. uh, but um, so but there is a difference. And the, the yes. refugee status, I, I do believe that number, that 30,000, uh, was uh, a refugee status, which... That sounds right. Um, I don't have a specific number for asylum or refugees, yeah, but I haven't right. heard a, a specific number of asylees right. this year. Yeah, but meanwhile, I think in the world, the, the guesstimate is that there are at least a million refugees floating around trying to flee their countries, Syria, mm-hmm. uh, other other places in the world, trying to find peace in their, in their world, and they're not able to do that. So from my perspective, it was a little the drop in that number you know, it used to be 70,000, and we still worried about people in the world. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, this has been a nation of ref- refugees, and my people have been uh, uh, refugees coming into this nation at different points uh, over history. So that was a hard thing. Yeah, absolutely. It's a hard thing. Any, um, any local refu- Are there any local refugee resettlement? processes happening that you're aware of? Not that I'm aware of. I know that the County of Sonoma is doing great work in helping undocumented populations. Um, I don't know how much that covers refugee resettlement, but they've got funding for removal defense and for all kinds of things. They're really working hard to be inclusive. You work with Rapid Response at all? I do, yes. I've met with them multiple times. And yeah, because they were on the program and it's been a long time. Perhaps you can uh, talk for a second about the work that they're doing. Yeah, Rapid Response is a volunteer-run organization. They're amazing. Um, they have an 800 number. They pass out Know Your Rights cards. And basically, if you feel threatened or you've seen ICE in, in an area and you would like someone to check on that, if, if you're undocumented and you think that immigration might be coming to your home, someone's knocking at your door, you can call Rapid Response. They'll send out kind of a a notice and, and a volunteer will show up and they can videotape what's going on. They can ask those officers questions. Do you have a warrant? What's your ID number? What's your officer number? And get that information. And if that person is taken by those ICE officers, then we have that video documentation and written information that um, the other family members might have been too afraid to find out. And uh, sometimes it makes it a lot easier to track down those people who may be taken. Other times, the officers will just leave once other people start showing up and asking too many questions because mm-hmm. they don't truly have a warrant to be able to enter or to take that person. And, uh, you know, they just rely on the fact that the, the community is afraid and they're going to go with them. So. Yeah, we had a little uh, blip in the system with a little ICE enforcement at a courthouse, which was supposed to not happen. Yes. Yeah, Courthouses, churches, schools, supposed to be safe houses. Um, specifically, I think our Sonoma County judges and, and uh, criminal law enforcement people were very upset, and the attorneys up there, because they're trying to help these people. They're trying, and these undocumented people are coming to court and trying to deal with whatever, whatever other thing they're going through, which could be as simple as driving without a license. Um, and now they're being picked up and afraid to come to court. And so that just creates even more of a barrier and even more of a problem. Immigration-wise, for me, it's more of a problem if they have a criminal issue they didn't deal with, and that remains open. Now they're 
potentially on the run from that. They're going to have open warrants. So they're just creating so many more problems. And if they're willing to deal with it, please let them deal with it. We don't need ICE there in interrogating and terrifying the community. Mm-hmm. So if um, are there other immigration lawyers in the county? Are you? Uh, oh yeah, uh, yeah, there yeah. are. Yeah, um, Vitas, which is a nonprofit, uh-huh. uh, Vital Immigrant Defense. They are amazing. Um, they do a lot of nonprofit work, and they are able to get some of that county grant, so they can do some removal defense for a lower rate or even. I don't know. I don't want to say it's free, but they can do it definitely at lower rates and really help those people who are having a hard time trying to find an attorney to represent them in mm-hmm. removal defense. So, um, if if you could wish uh, immigration reform on Congress and on this nation, what would that all look like? You know, people. I've heard that term over and over again. What we need is immigration reform, but I haven't quite seen the details of what that might look like in a, in a way that, at least from my perspective, reflects the ideals of this country uh, and the Statue of Liberty and all that that, uh, that symbolizes theoretically our openness to help people in the world. What would that immigration reform look like for you? I think that the immigration system we have now is broken in so many ways, talking about you know, a 30-year wait to get a family member in. And and if they've already applied for that, then there's no way they're going to get a visitor visa because we think you're going to stay. And so, you know, just making it more human, I think, would help immigration Uh reform. A lot of people are waiting for, um, you know, things to change dramatically. They think a new president is going to make a huge difference. And I don't think anything is going to move that quickly. But if we could maybe raise some of those limits and allow family members to come through and see their... You know, it's been 30 years since they've seen their parents, and, and people are getting elderly. And if there was a way that we could allow them to come and go, um, I think most people would come and go. I don't think that they would all stay here undocumented and, and sneak in. I think that they just want to see their family, and they'd be happy to return to their country. But that, in a lot of cases, that's not an option. So um, I think if we could do things legally, people would prefer to do that. Yeah, and of course, uh, how do we – and I, I know there's been this – uh, underlying concern that if pe- pe- based on the assumption that people prefer to live here than anywhere else in the world mm-hmm. uh, and therefore they're going to stay when they come here and how do you prove that they're going to go back that seems to be the the obstacle yeah the the way that they want you to prove it is to have a certain huge amount of money in the bank and prove that you have a home and a job and bills and all of these things that you wouldn't just up and leave um, and that's hard for a lot of people. Most people are living paycheck to paycheck and don't have thousands and thousands of dollars in the bank to prove that they're going to go home. Um, and even if they did, that's not necessarily proof of that. So it's it's a difficult thing to, to prove that you're going to return to your home. Um, many of my clients up and left homes they owned, jobs they loved, communities they loved out of fear, and they've left all their personal belongings in a house that's now abandoned in a foreign country. So... Even having those things isn't proof that you're going to return. That's true. Mm-hmm. That, that is true. So, uh, do you sleep at night? Not much. <laughs> you have two kids. No, sorry, because I have an eight-month-old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have two kids. Um, you know, it's. Uh, I can imagine that working on with the clients are and their 
challenges. It's a, it's a very human experience. It's not just a legal experience, a very human experience. Absolutely. And I, while I'm laying awake, I think about, you know, the families who have young, young children like mine. I have a three-year-old and an eight-month-old, and I would leave any country and all my belongings behind to protect them. And so I completely understand what these families are going through and the choices they've made, and I would do the exact same thing. Right. And so that makes it easier for me to fight for those families, but also heartbreaking. Um, I've We've lost cases because they just didn't qualify legally. And I've had clients just begging the judge and bursting into tears. And I can't imagine the judge's nights of sleep either. Yeah. You know, they have mm-hmm. to follow the law and they're doing their job. But when a mother is begging you to not send her and her children back to El Salvador or Guatemala or Mexico, um, and the judge said, ma'am, please don't beg, you know, he held his composure, but I can't, you know, I was barely holding mine, I'm barely holding it now, so I can't imagine what they go through as well. What's happening with the children at the border now, uh, the separation stuff? I think they're working on reuniting the children that that they've accidentally separated semi-permanently. I think some of them, they were taken... um, and they don't know where those parents are now, unfortunately. And it's just an incredibly heartbreaking situation. Um, I think the way that they did that was saying, if you've entered more than twice, that's a federal felony, and we're going to take these kids from this felon. Um, it was a loophole, and it was a pretty terrible way to do things. Yeah, it was a terrible way to do things. Um, uh, you know, yeah, for the children, it was a terrible thing. And it still... It still hangs over our country in spite of everything else that has happened. It still sits there as part of what we've done. So we have about another minute or so to uh, finish up. Anything you'd like to say to the community about the work you're doing and the concerns you have uh, to summarize? I think there's a lot of people doing great work. Rapid response yourself, other community organizations, and I think that it takes all of us working together. The immigrant community is terrified um, more so than ever, and with other things going on now with coronavirus and and medical issues and public charge laws, um, they're even more terrified, and so I think a little compassion is going to go a long way, and everyone working together is incredibly helpful. And I think uh, with you that um, a little more kindness in our world would uh, would help for everything that we have. It would. We don't know what people are going through. Yeah, we don't know what other people are going through. I want to thank you so much for coming in today and solving all these problems in our 26 minutes of discussion here. I know it's, it's endless, but thank you for the work that you do. It's really appreciated. And I want to let our listeners know that uh, on April 9th, which is our next, I'm sorry, if, uh, well, on April 9th, which is a month away, there will be a replay uh, of a previous program because uh, my friend Jim and I will be observing the Passover holiday and we will not be here. But in two weeks, we'll gather together again uh, at the end of March for our next program with a little introduction to Passover. So you have been listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted on KPCA LP, Petaluma, California.
I gotta stop.